Awakening Media presents, 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 The Life of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam The Medinan Period Volume 1 By Imam Anwar Al-Awliki A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahmanir Rahim مالك يوم الدين إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tisliman kathira. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Insha'Allah ta'ala will start with the hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I've already covered in the past the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Mecca. So insha'Allah ta'ala in these sessions we'll talk about the early stage of Medina. And we'll start with Al-Hijrah. But before that, just a word on Sirah. The books of Sirah are concerned with what usually historians are concerned with, and that's history of politics and the history of the military engagements. When it comes to the akhlaq of Rasulullah you'd find those in the books of Hadith. If your interest in the, is in the Shama'il of Rasulullah, which are issues relating to his character, you would find those in books of Shama'il. However, the books of Sirah usually cover the political and military aspects of the life of Rasulullah And that's why many of our scholars call Sirah Maghazi. Maghazi means battles. However, we'll try to bring in the verses of Qur'an that relate to the events that were happening in the time of Rasulullah because Quran would comment on events that happened in the time of Rasulullah sometimes the ayat of Quran would precede an event sometimes the ayat of Quran would come concurrent with an event and sometimes the ayat of Quran would come to comment on an event so for example you have Ghazwat al-Anfal was revealed talking about the battle of Badr and what happened therein uh, the battle of Uhud you have the end of the Surah of Al-Imran relates the story of Uhud. Surah Al-Hajr talks about the battle of Banu Nadir. You have the Surah of Al-Munafiqun and Surah Al-Nur, the battle of Banu Mustalaq. And you have Surah Al-Ahzab relating what happened in the battle of the trench. So we'll try to bring in these verses that relate to these events in Sirah. Uh, we'll start with the hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah Azza wa Jal revealed ayat in Mecca talking about al-hijrah. Allah Azza wa Jal says, قُلْ يَا عِبَادِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّقُوا رَبَّكُمْ لِلَّذِينَ أَحْسَنُوا فِي هَذِهِ الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَةً وَأَرْضُ اللَّهِ وَاسِعَةً إِنَّمَا يُوَفَّى الصَّابِرُونَ أَجْرَهُمْ Uh, say, O oh my servants who have believed, 
Fear your Lord, for those who do good in this world is good, and the earth of Allah is spacious. Indeed, the patient will be given their reward without account. So Allah Azawajal in this ayah says, The earth of Allah is spacious. Meaning that if you are suffering oppression in Mecca, then you can move somewhere else where you will be able to apply and live the religion of Allah Azawajal. Uh, Mujahid, who is one of al-Mufassirun, one of the imams of tafsir, uh, he says, commenting about this ayah, فِيهَا وَجَاهِدُوا He said, make hijrah in the land and fight in the path of Allah Azawajal and stay away from the idol worshipping. And Ata, one of the early scholars of this ummah, he says, إِذَا دُعِيتُمْ إِلَى مَعْصِيَةٍ فَهْرُبُوا If you are invited to do a sin, then run away. So we should run away from sins. And uh, these two quotes are in the tafsir of Ibn Kathir. Allah Azza wa Jalla also says, وَالَّذِينَ هَاجَرُوا فِي اللَّهِ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا ظُلِمُوا لَنُبَوِّئَنَّهُمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَةٍ وَلَأَجْرُ الْآخِرَةِ أَكْبَرُ لَوْ كَانُوا يَعْلَمُونَ الَّذِينَ صَبَرُوا وَعَلَى رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ Allah Azawajal says, And those who immigrated for Allah, after they have been wronged, we will surely settle them in this world in a good place, but the reward of the hereafter is greater if only they could know. So notice here, Allah Azawajal is promising the ones who make hijrah for his sake. The ones who have been oppressed. Allah promises them that he will settle them in this world in a good place. So what does this mean? What does it mean when Allah says we will settle them in this world in a good place? As some of the scholars of tafsir said, if you look at al-muhajirun, the ones who moved out of Mecca and went to Medina, later on every one of them became an emir of a state or a leader of an army. So Allah Azza wa gave them a better status in this world than what they had in Mecca. That is in this world. And in Akhirah, Allah Azza wa says, but the reward of the hereafter is greater. So Umar ibn Khattab, when he became Khalifa, and he would give money or gifts to the Muhajirun, he would tell them, this is a gift from Allah for you in this world, but what Allah has reserved for you in the hereafter is even greater. And the scholars say, whoever leaves something for the sake of Allah, Allah Azza wa Jal will give him something better. And Allah Azza wa Jal says, ثُمَّ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ لِلَّذِينَ هَاجَرُوا مِن بَعْدِ مَا فُتِنُوا ثُمَّ جَاهَدُوا وَصَبَرُوا ثُمَّ جَاهَدُوا وَصَبَرُوا إِنَّ رَبَّكَ مِن بَعْدِهَا لَغَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ then indeed your Lord to those who immigrated after they had been compelled and thereafter fought and were patient, indeed your Lord after that is forgiving and merciful. So hijrah has a very high status in Islam. These muhajirun, have you ever asked yourself the question, where did they stay when they moved from Mecca to Medina? Did they check into hotels or did they stay in refugee camps? No, they stayed in the houses of Al-Ansar. And that's why we call them Ansar. That's why we call them the ones who gave victory to Islam. Ansar means they gave support. They gave victory to the religion of Allah. Their houses were open for Al-Muhajirun. Even though they were very modest houses, 
For example, Al-Hasan al-Basri says that I entered into the rooms of Rasulullah and I could touch the ceiling with my own hand. And when Rasulullah would pray in the room of Aisha, you know, every, every wife of Rasulullah had a room. That was it, just one room. You know, they didn't have like a, a kitchen and a living room and a balcony and bedrooms, basement. No, every wife of Rasulullah just had one room. Now, when Rasulullah would pray in the room of Aisha, he would have to touch her so that she would move her feet away so that he can make sujood. It was that small. So for example, in the house of Habib ibn Asaf, uh, Talha bin Ubaidullah, his mother and Sahib, that's where they stayed. Hamza stayed in the house of Sa'ad bin Zurara. Uh, Sa'ad bin Khaytama, all of the bachelors would stay in his house, so they called it the house of bachelors. Ubaidah bin Harith and his mother, Al-Tufail bin Harith, Tulayl bin Amr, Al-Hussain bin Harith, all of them stayed in the house of Abdullah bin Salama. So one thing we can learn is that being generous and being supportive of Muslims is one of the signs of Iman and it was one of the signs of Al-Ansar radiallahu anhum. One comparison between the Hijrah to Medina and the Hijrah of Habasha because you know there were two Hijrah. There was the first Hijrah to Al-Habasha and then there was the second Hijrah to Medina. So what's the difference between the two? Well when it comes to the Hijrah to Al-Habasha it was more of they went there to flee persecution but they didn't become part of the society in Abyssinia. They weren't really part of the society. They were secluded. Therefore, their ability to change the society was hindered. They were like refugees in Abyssinia. And that's why when they left Abyssinia, they didn't leave a strong Islamic impression behind. However, the hijra to Medina was an hijra to establish the Islamic community. So there's a big difference between the two. Some of the virtues of Medina. Rasulullah asked Allah to make them love Medina. So he said, Allahumma habib ilayna al-Medina kuhubbina Mecca aw ashad. Oh Allah, make us love Medina like we love Mecca or more. Rasulullah made dua that Allah Azzawajal gives al-Medina barakah. Allahumma ja'al bil-Medina du'fay ma ja'alta bi Mecca min al-barakah. And this hadith is in Bukhari. Oh Allah, double the barakah, double the blessings of Medina compared to what you have given Mecca because who's the one who made dua to Allah to bless Mecca it was Ibrahim السلام. so Rasulullah is asking Allah to double that blessing when it comes to Medina Medina is protected from a Dajjal Rasulullah says that there are angels on every entrance to Medina protecting it from a Dajjal there is a special reward for being patient on the hardship of Medina because Medina is it was difficult to live in Medina at that time it was uh, very hot and the environment was harsh so Rasulullah says Rasulullah Muslim anyone who is patient on the hardships of Medina I will be his intercessor on the day of judgment I will intercede on his behalf on the day of judgment. There's a, a special blessing of dying in Medina. Rasulullah says, Whoever is able to die in Medina, then let it be so, because I will intercede for you on the day of judgment. And this hadith is in Musnad al-Imam Ahmad. You know, Umar ibn Khattab, عنه, when he became Khalifa, 
He wanted to die in Medina and he also wanted to die as a shaheed. He wanted them both. So he would make a dua to Allah saying, Oh Allah, I want to die as a martyr in the town of your prophet. So his daughter Hafsa would tell him, Oh my father, how can you become a shaheed in Medina when it's safe? Medina is the capital of the Muslim empire. If you want to die as a shaheed, you need to go to Iraq, you need to go to Syria, but not in Medina. Umar ibn al-Khattab would say, if Allah wants something to happen, he will make it happen. So not only did Umar die as a shaheed in Medina, he died as a shaheed in the mosque of Rasulullah and in Salah. Medina is also the refuge of Iman. Rasulullah says, إِنَّ الْإِيمَانَ لَيَأْرِزُ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ كَمَا تَأْرِزُ الْحَيَّةُ إِلَى جُحْرِهَا Rasulullah says in Bukhari that Iman seeks refuge in Medina or goes back to Medina like a snake would go back to its hole. Medina cleanses itself from the impure or the unclean. Rasulullah says, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدَهِ لَا يَخْرُجُ مِنْهَا أَحَدٌ رَغْبَةً عَنْهَا إِلَّا أَخْلَفَ اللَّهُ فِيهَا خَيْرًا مِنْهِ أَلَا إِنَّ الْمَدِينَةَ كَالْكِيرِ يُخْرِجُ الْخَبَثِ لَا تَقُمُ السَّاعَةَ حَتَّى تَنْفِي الْمَدِينَةَ شِرَارَهَا كَمَا يَنْفِي الْكِيرُ خَبَثَ الْحَدِيدِ Rasulullah says in Muslim, in the name of whom my soul is in his hands, nobody leaves Medina because he doesn't want it anymore, except that Allah will replace him with someone better than him. And then Rasulullah says that Medina cleanses itself from the people who are impure or the people who are evil. And Rasulullah says the day of judgment will not occur until Medina drives out all of the evil people in it. Like the fire would drive out the impurities of iron. Allah Azza wa protects Medina. Rasulullah says, لا يكيد أهل المدينة أحد إلا ماع كما ينماع الملح في الماء. Rasulullah says, whoever plots against the people of Medina, Allah will make him dissolve like salt dissolves in water. And this hadith is in Bukhari. And Medina also is sacred. So Rasulullah says you're not allowed to cut down trees in Medina, you're not allowed to hunt in Medina, you're not allowed to carry weapons in Medina because of its sanctity. So these are some of the blessings of the Medina of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Before Rasulullah decided to make hijrah, the people of Mecca plotted against him. They came together and they started discussing how to deal with the Islamic problem. Some of them suggested that we should throw Muhammad sallallahu in jail. The response was, no, don't do that. This is not a good idea because if you throw him in jail, his followers will come and take him out. They're going to revolt against us. So the second suggestion came in and that's to exile him, drive him out of Medina. So they said, no, that's not a good idea because his talk is very sweet. So he's going to deceive other people to believe in him and then they're going to come back to you again. So the third suggestion was that of obviously who else other than Abu Jahl. He said we should kill him. And the way to do that is to appoint a strong man from every clan. Give him a sharp sword and then have them all strike Muhammad at once. So that his blood will disperse among the different clans of Mecca. So that the family of Rasulullah will not be able to seek revenge. And then they will ask for blood money and we will be happy to pay it to them. They said, this is the suggestion that we adopt. And Allah Azza wa says, وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيُثْبِتُوكَ أَوْ يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ And remember, O Muhammad, 
when those who disbelieved plotted against you to restrain you, which is to throw you in jail, or to kill you, or to evict you from Mecca. But they plan, and Allah plans, and Allah is the best of planners. So they planned to execute Muhammad They wanted to assassinate him. But Allah will protect him. Allah told Muhammad to recite the following dua. And this is an ayah in Surah Al-Isra. وَقُلْ رَبِّ أَدْخِلْنِي مُدْخَلَ صِدْقٍ وَأَخْرِجْنِي مُخْرَجَ صِدْقٍ وَاجْعَلْ لِي مِنْ لَدُنْكَ سُلْطَانًا نَصِيرًا And say, My Lord, cause me to enter a sound entrance and to exit a sound exit and grant me from yourself a supporting authority. So to cause me to enter a sound entrance is to go to Medina. And to exit the sound exit is to leave Mecca. And grant me from yourself a supporting authority. Because Allah is teaching Muhammad that this religion is supported by authority. Rasulullah says that Allah sometimes could support this religion through authority in ways that Quran cannot support the religion. And that's why Khilafah was a very important concept to the Muslims. In fact, the Sahaba met to decide the issue of Khilafah before they buried Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As we mentioned in the story of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam set out to prepare for Hijrah. Aisha radiallahu anha said that one day at mid-noon in the house of Abu Bakr, we saw a man approaching us and he was masked. He covered his face. So Abu Bakr Siddiq saw that it was Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He said Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wouldn't come at this time except if it's something important. Because it was at noon and people usually sleep at noon. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa came in and he said, Oh Abu Bakr, have everyone in your house leave. Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu said, The only ones who are in my house are your family, O Rasulullah. Meaning my family is like yours. You can trust speaking in the presence of my family because they like your own family. So Rasulullah said, I was given permission to leave and to make hijrah to Medina. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu said, O oh oh Messenger of Allah, can I be your companion? Rasulullah said, Yes. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu started to weep. Aisha radiallahu anha said, I never saw somebody weeping because of pleasure, because of joy. Like my father that day. Now, I just want to stop right here and say, this was not an entertaining journey. Abu Bakr knew very well that he's risking his life by being the companion of Rasulullah on Hijrah. So how come he's crying of joy when he knows that he's putting his life on the line? Brothers and sisters, this shows you the level of sacrifice that Abu Bakr Siddiq is willing to go to and it shows you that he's so happy to sacrifice for Rasulullah I mean, his heart is not trembling. He's not afraid. He's crying because of joy when he knows that he could be killed. But this shows you the love that he had for Rasulullah Rasulullah appointed Ali ibn Abi Talib to sleep on his bed. And this is another sacrifice because Ali ibn Abi Talib was also risking his life. But these were the Sahaba of Rasulullah sallallahu This is how far they were willing to go. Rasulullah sallallahu and Abu Bakr, they left Mecca. And Rasulullah loved Mecca so much. So he looked back. 
أن يسعد والله إنك لخير أرض الله وأحب أرض الله إلى الله ولولا أني أخرجت منك ما خرجت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم says in the name of Allah you are the most beloved land to Allah and if it wasn't that I was driven out from you I wouldn't have left I wouldn't leave Mecca if I had the choice but he was driven out of it the journey started and Abu Bakr Siddiq for some time would walk ahead of Rasulullah and then for some time he would walk behind Rasulullah so the messenger of Allah noticed that and then he asked Abu Bakr how come sometimes you walk in front of me and sometimes you walk behind me Abu Bakr Siddiq said when I remember that somebody could ambush you from in front of us I walk ahead of you and then I remember that somebody could be pursuing us, so I walk behind you. Then Rasulullah said, Oh Abu Bakr, would you rather have harm happen to you or to me? Abu Bakr Siddiq said, Oh Messenger of Allah, I would rather have it happen to me and not to you. And then they reached to the cave, so Abu Bakr Siddiq went in to check the cave to make sure that there's no snakes, there's no scorpions, there's no ambush. And then he told Rasulullah to come in. When they were in the cave, the kuffar of Quraysh succeeded in following their tracks until they reached to the mouth of the cave. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu told Rasulullah Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, if one of them would stare right under their feet, they would see us. They were right there at the mouth of the cave. Rasulullah with all confidence, he said, Ya Abu Bakr, Oh Abu Bakr, what do you think about two men if Allah is their third? مَا ظَنُّكَ بِثْنَيْنِ اللَّهُ ثَالِثُهُمَا Abu Bakr, how would you regard the safety of two people who had Allah as their third companion? You know what stopped them from entering the cave? It was a web of a spider. Allah Azawajal says about the web of the spider, إِنَّ أَوْهَنَ الْبِيُوتِ لَبَيْتُ الْعَنْكَبُوتِ The most feeble of houses is the house of a spider. With one finger you could tear down the whole web. So this feeble, weak web was the soldier of Allah that stopped the disbelievers from entering into the cave. And this shows us that Allah Azza can choose sometimes the weakest of his creation to be his soldier. This story of the web of the spider is an agreeable narration. It is Hassan. Allah Azzawajal says, if you do not aid him, Allah Azzawajal revealed this ayah later on. This ayah is in Surah At-Tawbah. It's a few years after the Hijrah. And Allah Azzawajal is speaking to the Sahaba and telling them, if you do not aid him, Allah has already aided him. You know, that day when Abu Bakr was the only companion of Rasulullah and the kuffar were surrounding the cave, none of you were around and Allah didn't need you to support his prophet. So Allah is telling the Sahaba, if you do not aid him now, Allah has already aided him. إِذْ <laughs> 
فأنزل الله سكينته عليه وأيده بجنود لم تروها وجعل كلمة الذين كفروا السفلى وكلمة الله هي العليا والله عزيز حكيم When those who disbelieved had driven him out as one of two When they were in the cave and he said to his companion, so notice here Allah is calling Abu Bakr as the companion of Rasulullah. That's an honor to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, his companion. Do not grieve. Indeed, Allah is with us. And Allah sent down his tranquility upon him and supported him with soldiers you did not see. One of these soldiers is a spider. And made the word... Of those who disbelieved the lowest, while the word of Allah, that is the highest. And Allah is exalted in might and wise. So the soldiers of Allah referred to in this ayah are the angels. These are the unseen soldiers. But then you also have the spider, which was a seen soldier. Now, they stayed in the cave for three days. During those three days, Abdullah, the son of Abu Bakr, would spend the day in Mecca, listening to conversations eavesdropping to see what they're saying about Muhammad sallallahu and Abu Bakr. And then he would go at night and spend it with Rasulullah and Abu Bakr in the cave. And he would have Amr bin Fuhaira, the servant of Abu Bakr, follow him with his sheep. So this has a double purpose. The sheep will provide milk to the Prophet and Abu Bakr and the sheep will also cover the tracks of Abdullah and Amr, so that no one will know where they went. And this carried on for three days. And then the guide showed up, which was Abdullah bin Uraiqat. He was a mushrik, a disbeliever, but because he had an alliance with people of Quraysh, uh, Rasulullah hired him to be their guide. So he was the one who will take them through a different route than the usual one that people usually take when they travel from Mecca to Medina. They set on the trip to Medina. They did not follow the regular route, but they went on the coast, coastline. They followed the coastline until they reached to Medina. The people of Quraysh set a bounty on Rasulullah and Abu Bakr. 100 camels each, dead or alive. And they were sending out their messengers to convey the news to the Bedouins of the desert, the experts of the roots of the desert, uh, telling them that if you bring us Muhammad, dead or alive, or Abu Bakr, we'll give you 100 camels each. Suraqa bin Malik was the head of one of these Bedouin tribes. He said, I was sitting in a gathering of my people. When a man showed up and said, I saw two men in the horizon, and I think that these are the two men Quraysh are looking for. Suraqa said, I told him, no, these, were, these two men were just here a while ago and they just left. He said, I told him that to deceive him, but I knew or I felt that those men were Muhammad sallallahu and Abu Bakr, but I just told him that because I wanted to get the camels for myself. So Suraqa said, I stayed in the gathering for a while so that they wouldn't be suspicious. And then I left, I went to my house and I told my servant to go and prepare my horse. 
the saddle and all, and to hide it behind a mountain or a, a, a hill. And then I left from the back door and I was carrying my spear and he said my spear was dragging on the ground. Uh, why? Because the spear is, is long, so he didn't want anybody to see it, so he was dragging it. And then he said, I mounted my horse and I went to the direction that that man saw uh, the two men. And it was as I thought, the two men were Muhammad Sallallahu and Abu Bakr. So now you only have a few meters between Suraqa becoming a millionaire. 100 camels each. He's right there. Suraqa says Abu Bakr was looking back while Muhammad Sallallahu was reciting Quran and he never looked back. Rasulullah was confident that Allah will give him victory. While Abu Bakr was very concerned, not for himself, but concerned for the safety of Muhammad. So he was staring back. While Muhammad was reciting Quran, Abu Bakr told Rasulullah that there's somebody pursuing us. Rasulullah made a dua, and the horse of Suraqa sank in the sand, and Suraqa fell off its back. Suraqa said, So I cast lots. You know, they had all of these superstitious beliefs. And he cast lots. Should I follow them or shouldn't I follow them? The lots told me that I shouldn't follow them. But I insisted on following them. His greed drives him further. So what's the point of casting the lots if you're going to disobey them anyway? He followed them another time and the same thing happened. He fell off his horse. And he said, this never happened to me. I never fell off my horse. The third time it happened to him, he said, a cloud of dust exploded in my face from in front of my horse. So I knew that Allah is supporting this man. So I rushed towards him, asking him to grant me peace. Suraqa, who was pursuing Muhammad wasallam, now became the pursuit. Suraqa, who thought that he could kill Muhammad wasallam, is now worried for his own safety and is asking Muhammad wasallam to grant him peace. So Rasulullah told him, I grant you peace. Suraqa told him, write that down for me on a piece of paper. I want to make sure. Write it down for me. So Rasulullah told Amr bin Fahira to write down a document stating that Rasulullah is granting Suraqa bin Malik peace. Suraqa sticks this piece of cloth or whatever in his pocket and years pass by. And subhanAllah, eight or nine years later, he was arrested when Rasulullah was laying siege to Taif. And when they were going to kill him, he pulled that document out. And he told them, this is a paper, a document from Rasulullah granting me peace. That document saved his life. Now Suraqa went back and he told the people of Quraysh that uh, you're not going to find Muhammad وسلم, forget about it. Because Rasulullah told him to weaken anybody who's trying to pursue us, drive them away from us. So Suraqa, who was trying to arrest them now, is their guard. Suraqa became a bodyguard for Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Rasulullah sallallahu and Abu Bakr visited a tent. In front of this tent was a woman, an old woman. Her name is Umm Ma'bad. This was a very generous woman. Anybody who would pass by, she would feed them. And when Rasulullah and Abu Bakr got there, she didn't provide them with anything. So Rasulullah asked her if she has anything to spare. She said, if I had anything, you wouldn't have to ask. 
So Rasulullah saw in the corner of her tent a uh, very weak goat. So he asked her, what's the problem with that goat? She said, that goat is too weak to go out with the rest of the flock to feed. So Rasulullah said, is there any milk in her? She said, she's weaker than that. Rasulullah said, will you allow me to milk her? She said, go ahead. So Rasulullah goes to milk that goat and he asks for a big container, not a cup, a big container. And then he touches the goat and he starts milking it. And milk is flowing out until it fills the container and all of this foam on top of the milk. And then he gives it to Umm Muhammad first. So she drinks. And then he gives it to Abu Bakr and Amr and Abdullah bin Uraiqat. And they all drink and he's the last to drink. And he said, the servant of the people is the last to drink. So he was the last to drink. And then he left and there was still a lot of milk in that container. So the husband of Umm Muhammad comes back with the flock with his flock of sheep. And he sees this milk and he says, Umm Ma'bad, where did this milk come from? She said, a blessed man visited us. And he's the one who milked the she-goat. He asked her to describe this man to her. Umm Ma'bad gave a description of Rasulullah that remains until this day as one of the best descriptions ever given about Rasulullah even though she only met him once. And I will read to you her description of Rasulullah She said, I saw him to be a man of evident splendor, fine in figure, his face handsome, slim in form, his head not too small, elegant and good looking, his eyes large and black, his eyelids long, his voice deep, very intelligent. His brows high and arched, his hair in plaits, his neck long and his beard thick. He gave an impression of dignity when silent and of high intelligence when he talked. His words were impressive and he was decisive, not trivial, not trite. His ideas like pearls moving on their string. He seemed the most splendid and fine looking man from a distance and the very best of all from close by, medium in height, the eye not finding him too tall nor too short, a tree branch as it were between two others, but he was the finest looking of the three. The best proportioned, he was the center of his companions' attention. When he spoke, they listened well, and if he ordered, they hurried to obey. A man well helped, well served, never sullen, never refuted. Her husband said, this man must be Muhammad, the one whom Quraysh are pursuing. If I meet him, I will pledge allegiance to him and become Muslim. Now, by the way, Umm Ma'bad did pledge allegiance to Rasulullah and she became Muslim. Some lessons from Hijrah. Number one, the concept of Hijrah. There are two types of Hijrah. There is figurative hijrah and there is the literal hijrah. The figurative hijrah is, as was mentioned in a hadith of Rasulullah in An-Nasai, أَن تَهْجُرَ مَا كَرِهَ رَبُّكَ عَزَّ وَجَلَ Hijrah is to leave what Allah Azza wa Jal dislikes. So this is a figurative hijrah. 
It is to immigrate from the state of sin to the state of obeying Allah Azza wa Jal. And Allah Azza wa Jal says in Quran, Stay away from impurities. Make hijrah from impurities. From idol worshipping, from evil. And this type of hijrah is mandatory on everyone. All of us have to leave the state of sin to the state of obedience. Then we have the literal hijrah and that is to move from one land to another. You move from the land of evil to the land of good. Examples of that are the hijrah of Rasulullah and the Sahaba or the hijrah of the man from the children of Israel who killed a hundred people and then he went to consult a scholar so the scholar told him Allah will accept your repentance but you have to move from this town because it's a town of evil and go to that other town because you'll find therein people who will support you in worshipping Allah Azza wa Jal. Benefits of hijrah. Hijrah can cause an economic boom. Examples of that, Grenada for example. Grenada, the Muslim Grenada, the last Islamic state in Andalusia. When the Christian north, the Spaniards, started taking over, conquering Islamic land, the Muslims would leave and they would settle in southern Spain, in Grenada, Granada. So there was a population boom. It reached to over 2 million. But these are men who came in with their skills, with their abilities as merchants, their abilities as farmers. So Grenada flourished and it became the wealthiest state in all of Europe. What caused that? A major part was due to the hijrah of the Muslims from northern Spain to southern Spain. The same thing is, for example, happened in the U.S., happened in, for example, Holland earlier, a few centuries before, when all of the, for example, the Calvinists, the Protestants, uh, uh, moved from some parts of Europe to uh, Holland. So Hijra brings the talents of people together, and a small village could turn into a huge city because of Hijra. You have all of the mines coming together. For example, now you have an immigration of Muslim minds going to the Western world. So the Muslim land is deprived from their abilities while they are flooding towards the West and the fruit of their knowledge is given in Western countries while their Muslim lands are deprived of that. Hijrah represents the manifestation of the conflict between good and evil. If we go back to the first days of da'wah, when Rasulullah was for the first time exposed to revelation, and he just knew that he has become a prophet, he came down from the cave and he was very terrified and worried. So he went to his wife Khadija anha and he told her to wrap him in a garment. That's when the verses of Ya Ayyuhal Muzammal and Ya Ayyuhal Muddathir were revealed. So Khadija radiallahu anha told Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, why don't we go to my uncle and consult him? Waraqab bin Nawfal was a wise old man who was literate and he studied the early scriptures. And he read the books of the Jewish and the Christian faith. So he was a knowledgeable man relatively speaking, in the environment of Arabia. So they went to Waraka bin Nawfal and they talked to him and Waraka asked Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, Oh nephew, what do you see? So Waraka is asking Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and telling him, what do you see? 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa explained to him what happened. Waraka bin Nawfal said, This was the angel Jibreel who used to come down to Musa. How I wish I were a young man again. I hope I am still alive when your people exile you. Now this statement, this last statement was a shock to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. My people will exile me. How would that happen? You need to keep in mind that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was the most beloved man in Quraysh. So what would cause them to drive him out of Mecca? Plus in the tribal society, the tribe is everything and the tribe doesn't forsake any of its members. So how could it happen that Quraysh, the noble tribe of Arabia, would drive out one of its members? So Rasulullah asked Waraka and said, are they going to exile me? Waraka replied, yes, no one has ever received what you have without being treated as an enemy. If I am alive when your time comes, I will give you every help. So Waraka bin Nawfal is speaking about a reality of the history of the da'wah. When a person comes up with the truth of Islam, this is what happens. People split into two camps. Allah Azza wa Jal says about the people of Thamud, and we had certainly sent to Thamud their brother Salih, saying, worship Allah. And at once there were two parties conflicting. So Salih, who was at a similar position to Muhammad Sallallahu very respected in his people, but when he started preaching the truth to them, when he started preaching Islam, when he started preaching the oneness of Allah Azza wa Jal, they split into two conflicting camps. And that's why Quran is called Al-Furqan. Furqan is the criterion. It separates between good and evil. It splits the society into two. And the Battle of Badr is also called Furqan for the same reason. Thirteen years later, what Waraqa bin Nawfal predicted did happen. Allah Azawajal says, And thus have we made for every prophet an enemy from among the criminals. But sufficient is your Lord as a guide and a helper. So every prophet has enemies. That is the sunnah, the way of Allah Azza wa Jal. So that's the second lesson. The third lesson, we can notice from the hijrah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the elaborate planning that went into it. Number one, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam visits Abu Bakr at noon. At noontime, people are in a siesta because of the heat of Arabia. People don't venture out of their houses. Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was out at that time so that nobody would notice him. And in case somebody does notice him, he was masked. He covered his face. Number two. Rasulullah sallallahu when he came in to the house of Abu Bakr, he asked him to clear his house. أَخْرِجْ مَنْ عِنْدَكَ يَا أَبَا So Rasulullah sallallahu wants to keep it as a secret. Number three. He had Ali bin Abi Talib sleep on his bed. Number four. The camels were already ready and prepared. Number five, they left under the cover of darkness and from a back door. Number six, they hired a guide. Number seven, Medina is north of Mecca, while Rasulullah and Abu Bakr headed south to deceive the disbelievers. Eight, they went into hiding for three days in the cave. Number nine, Abdullah ibn Abu Bakr Siddiq would come to them with information. He would gather information during the day and come and present it to them at night. Number 10, Amr bin Fuhaira brings them food. 
So you could see that a lot of planning went into the hijrah of Rasulullah and that's how we should conduct our Islamic work. We shouldn't just say that, uh, mashallah, Allah will take care of everything and Allah will give us barakah. Just, just do what you can do and I wish that we would do what we can do. But sometimes what this means is you don't have to do a lot. Just do what you can do it doesn't mean that you do have to do a lot. While Rasulullah went to extreme lengths to ensure that he does his best in the planning for hijrah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already promised him with protection, I mean, he is the messenger of Allah, Allah will take care of him, Allah will support him, Allah will honor him, so he, hasn't, he doesn't have to do all of this, but he did it to teach us that as a Muslim you have to do your best. You have to do your best, and this is ihsan. The fourth lesson from the hijrah of Rasulullah the role of woman. And we'll try to bring up the role of woman in fighting, the role of woman in Medina, the role of woman in hijrah, because our sisters need to see their role models. How did we hear about the whole story of hijrah? Who was the narrator of the story of hijrah? Whether it's in Sahih al-Bukhari or Sahih al-Muslim. It was Aisha radiallahu anha. The whole story of hijrah was preserved by Aisha radiallahu anha. Number two, Asma bint Abi Bakr, the sister of Aisha. She tore her griddle to put food into it, to send it to Rasulullah and Abu Bakr. She suffered because of hijrah. Abu Jahl and some men from Quraysh came knocking on the door of Abu Bakr after they left. And Asma opened the door, so Abu Jahl asked her, where is your father? She said, I don't know where my father is. So he slapped her on her face so hard. That was a suffering that she took for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal to protect Rasulullah and Abu Bakr. She didn't go screaming and yelling and hollering, oh yeah, yeah, my father left to Hijrah and just because of one slap. She was patient and she stayed quiet. And you can notice here that she lied. She said, I don't know where my father is and it's allowed to lie in such a situation because it's for the protection of a Muslim, Rasulullah and Abu Bakr Siddiq anhu. So she suffered because of Hijrah. Uh, she was patient. She had tawakkul on Allah. The father of Abu Bakr, her grandfather, he was already a blind man. He came in and he said, I see that my son has caused you two sufferings. One, by him leaving, and number two, by him not leaving you behind any money. So Asma, she was very creative. She went and filled the sack with some rocks and put it in the hands of her grandfather and said, no, look, he left us a lot of money. The grandfather said, well, it's good that he did so. She did that to keep him calm. So she was very content, she was very patient, and she had tawakkul on Allah Azza wa Jal. In addition to Aisha and Asma being women, we can also say that they're members of the family of Abu Bakr, so we could also use these same examples to show the sacrifice that the entire family of Abu Bakr went into for the sake of hijrah. Number five, another lesson from hijrah, you need to choose your companions well. Who did Rasulullah choose to join him in hijrah? It was Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. It was the best choice that Rasulullah could make. Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu, first of all, he loved Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He loved him. And this love wasn't lip service. It was real. Abu Bakr Siddiq cried when he knew that he will be with Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on hijrah. And he was so happy that he's going to join Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This shows you his love. He used his entire family to serve Rasulullah in this journey. He had a high sense of security. He was very wise, a man. He was willing to sacrifice his life for Muhammad as we talked about last night. 
when he went into the cave and when he was walking in front of Rasulullah and then walking behind him. By the way, this incident was narrated to us by Umar ibn Khattab. When Umar was Khalifa, he heard that some people are gathering and they're discussing who's better, Abu Bakr or Umar. So Umar rushed towards them and he said that one day in the life of Abu Bakr is better than the entire family of Umar. And he narrated to them this story. He said that day in the life of Abu Bakr, the day of Hijrah, that single day is better not only than Umar and the entire life of Umar, but better than the entire family of Umar for all of their lives. And that shows you the recognition that the Sahaba had of the high status of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu. The next lesson in Hijrah. A lot of what Rasulullah was doing at that stage was secret. He was doing it in secret to preserve Islam and Muslims. But then there needs to be a balance between secrecy and da'wah. Da'wah by nature is a public outward act. So how do you balance between giving da'wah and in the same time protecting your organization and protecting Islam and Muslims? We find that, for example, in Hijrah, we have examples of both. Examples of secrecy, Ibn Ishaq says, And as I have been told, no one knew of the departure of the Messenger of Allah except Ali ibn Abi Talib and Abu Bakr and his family. These were the only people who knew about the Hijrah of Rasulullah So it, it shows that Rasulullah wanted to keep it secret. And for example, when Rasulullah and Abu Bakr were traveling, and they would meet some people, Anas ibn Malik would say that, Abu Bakr was a known man while Rasulullah wasn't known in terms of knowing people outside of Mecca because Abu Bakr was a man who traveled a lot. He did business. So he knew a lot of people in all of these villages and towns and because of his traveling. While Rasulullah didn't travel outside of Mecca in the time of da'wah except to At-Ta'if. The rest of the time he spent it giving da'wah inside Mecca itself. He never ventured out of Mecca. So people outside of Mecca didn't really know him. They knew about him but they never really saw him. So Anas ibn Malik said that people would come and meet Abu Bakr and talk to him. Now, they would ask Abu Bakr after they would greet him and ask him, how is he doing? They would ask him, who is this man with you? Abu Bakr would say, this man is a guide. He is showing me the path. This man is a guide and he is showing me the path. Now, what these people would understand is that he's a guide guiding him in the desert. But what Abu Bakr really meant is that this man is guiding me towards Allah. But he put it in this very in this statement to protect the identity of Rasulullah. He didn't want to tell them that this is Muhammad ﷺ, because now you have a hundred camels. There was a bounty on Rasulullah ﷺ. So he wanted to protect his identity, and the way he did it was by making this statement, so you can see that Abu Bakr is not lying. But they are understanding something different than what he means. This is what is called Tawriyah. So you can see this secrecy part. Now when it comes to da'wah, the identity would need to be exposed for da'wah. So when Rasulullah met with Burayd al-Aslami, he did tell him that I am Muhammad and he did give him da'wah and Burayd became Muslim. And he joined Rasulullah in 16 out of his 19 battles. And he was ahead of his people. Rasulullah also met with two thieves and he gave them da'wah. And they became Muslim. Rasulullah said, what's your, what's your name? They said, our name is the 
Al-Muhanan. Al-Muhanan means the dishonored ones. The people used to call them the dishonored ones. So Rasulullah told them, no, you are the honored ones. Another example of da'wah, Rasulullah met with a shepherd. So he asked him, can you give us some milk? The shepherd said, none of my goats has milk at the moment. Rasulullah chose one of them and said, would you allow me to milk it? The shepherd said, go ahead. And Rasulullah did milk it and a lot of milk started flowing out. And then he gave the shepherd to drink first and then he and Abu Bakr drank. So the shepherd asked Muhammad وسلم, he said, for heaven's sake, who are you? I never saw the like of you. Rasulullah responded, do you think you could keep it secret if I told you? So the man said, yes. Rasulullah said, I am Muhammad, the messenger of Allah. The shepherd said, you mean you are the one Quraysh say claims to be a Sabian? Sabian was a degrading accusation that the people of Quraysh would level towards the Muslims. They would call them Asabi'un rather than call them Muslim. Rasulullah said, uh, yes, they do say that. The man said, well, I bear witness that you bring the truth and that only a prophet could do as you have. I am your follower now. Rasulullah told him, you cannot be that right now. Come and join us when you hear I have declared myself openly. Rasulullah doesn't mean that you cannot follow me in terms of becoming Muslim. He means you cannot join me now. But he did accept his Islam. But he cannot join the Islamic jama'ah at the moment and follow Rasulullah because Rasulullah is still at that secretive stage. So you can see here the balance between giving da'wah and protecting the identity of Rasulullah and being secret. Rasulullah did declare his identity to people whom he thought would be respondent to the da'wah. But he didn't give da'wah to every single person he met in hijrah. Because all of those people Abu Bakr would meet and Abu Bakr would tell them this is a guide. Rasulullah did not give them da'wah. He did not invite them to Islam. So it shows you that there's a balance between the two. Finally, the da'iyah needs to be financially independent. When Rasulullah told Abu Bakr that I've been given permission to make hijrah and Abu Bakr told him I will join you and be your companion, Abu Bakr told Muhammad here are two camels for hijrah. Rasulullah said, Bithaman, I'm going to take the camel and pay for it. Notice Rasulullah is saying that he's going to pay for that camel. So it's important for the da'iyah to be financially independent because what happens is that when a scholar is on the government payroll, there's a conflict of interest when that scholar is giving a fatwa on any issue that relates to the government. When the government is feeding the scholar, the scholar will be hesitant to criticize the government. And there's a clear conflict of interest in any fatwa that relates to politics or relates to issues that upset the government. And that's why, for example, we hear issues such as scholars giving fatwa that it's allowed to have interest banks, banks that deal with the interest system rather than Islamic banks. This is, for example, a fatwa that was forced upon a scholar or a scholar said it to please the government. That's just an example. So it's important for dua scholars and preachers who invite to Islam to be financially independent. Rasulullah and Abu Bakr were traveling in the desert 
at the peak of the summer season. It was very hot. Ibn Ishaq says, then he took them down, he's referring to the guide, then he took them down the valley and so to Quba to the Bani Amr bin Auf. It was now Monday the 12th of Rabi' al-Awwal and the heat was extreme, the sun almost having reached its zenith. So it was in the middle of summer, very hot, when Rasulullah and Abu Bakr al-Siddiq uh, made hijrah. The Ansar would go out of Medina every day in the morning in anticipation of meeting Rasulullah and greeting him. But when the heat becomes too extreme, they would go indoors. So one day they went early in the morning waiting for Rasulullah When he didn't show up, they went back in. Uh, there was a Jew who was climbing on one of their high buildings and he saw Muhammad and Abu Bakr approaching. They were dressed in white. The reason why they were dressed in brand new white clothes is because Rasulullah and Abu Bakr met with Zubair bin Awam who was coming back from a business trip to Syria and he just brought with him some new clothes. So he gave Rasulullah and Abu Bakr gifts and these are the clothes that they put on when they went into Medina. So this Jew saw Muhammad and Abu Bakr approaching. So he called the top of his voice. He said, Oh Arabs, here is your man. He arrived. So the Ansar rushed towards their weapons and marched out to meet Rasulullah You might wonder how come they went dressed in their weapons or putting their weapons on. The reason could be that this was the tradition that when you meet somebody or you greet him, uh, you go out carrying your weapons. And this is still a tradition in some uh, tribal societies that when they would meet an important guest, they would take their rifles with them to greet that guest. The other reason could be that the bay'ah that the Ansar gave to Rasulullah was a bay'ah protection. They were offering him protection. So they were carrying their weapons with them to show him that here we are ready and prepared to serve you and protect you. So Rasulullah arrived and people started greeting them. Now they arrived at the outskirts of Medina, which is Quba. And Rasulullah stayed there in Quba for 14 days. And that is when he built the message of Quba, the first message in Islam. This message is special. If you make wudu at your home and you go to Masjid Quba and pray two rak'ah, it counts as if you have made Umrah. That is a special virtue to praying in the Masjid of Quba. Rasulullah stayed in a house called the House of Bachelors, because all of the men in there were bachelor. The house of Sa'ad bin Khaythama. Rasulullah stayed there because all of the guests are coming in and out of the house, so he didn't want to stay with the family and burden them with all of these people who are coming to meet him. So he stayed in this bachelor's house. And while he was there, Rasulullah sent messengers to Medina asking them permission to come in. So they sent him a large delegation and they came and met Rasulullah and said, Udkhula aminayni muta'ayn. Come in and you are safe and you will be obeyed. So Rasulullah is not coming to Medina as a guest. He is coming to lead the people of Medina. 
And they came and told him, you will be obeyed. And Allah says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ رَسُولٍ إِلَّا لِيُطَاعَ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ Every prophet that we have sent, or every messenger that we have sent, we sent them to be obeyed. So the people should follow the messengers of Allah. Now Rasulullah goes into Medina. It was an amazing day. It was a huge celebration. People came out to greet him. The men came out armed. The Abyssinians were dancing with their spears. Women were standing on rooftops. Children were flooding the streets. Everybody wants to catch a glimpse of Rasulullah Anas ibn Malik says, The Messenger of Allah did come and his companion. They were among the townspeople. Even the old people came out to greet them, climbing on top of houses and shouting, Which one is he? Anas ibn Malik says, we never saw such a sight before. People coming out, everybody wants to catch a glimpse of Rasulullah People were happy that Rasulullah has arrived. Anas ibn Malik anhu said, I witnessed the day he entered among us, and I witnessed the day he died. And I never saw two days as those. I never saw two days like that in my life. Anas ibn Malik says in another narration, I witnessed two days. One day was the brightest and best day in my life, and that was the day Rasulullah and Abu Bakr came into Medina. The other day was the darkest day and the worst day in my life, and that was the day in which Rasulullah passed away, and I've witnessed both of them. So dear brothers and sisters, the best day Medina has ever witnessed was the day in which Rasulullah came in. And the worst day Medina has ever witnessed was the day Rasulullah left them. Rasulullah was offered to stay in every house in Medina. All of them were welcoming. But Rasulullah wanted to stay with Banu Najjar because Banu Najjar are his relatives. You see, Hashim married a woman from Banu Najjar. Banu Najjar are from Al Khazraj. Therefore, Abdul Muttalib, his maternal uncles, are from Medina, from Banu Najjar. So Rasulullah said, I want to stay with Banu Najjar. And then he asked Banu Najjar, he said, Which house of Banu Najjar is closest to me? So Abu Ayyub al Ansari said, My house. So Rasulullah stayed at the house of Abu Ayyub. Rasulullah wanted to stay in the lower level while Abu Ayyub was trying to convince him to stay in the upper level. It was a two-story house. The reason why Rasulullah wanted to stay in the lower level is because people are visiting him. So he wanted to make it easy and stay in the lower level. Finally, Abu Ayyub agreed. Abu Ayyub says, we had a container filled with water that fell. So we were afraid that water would drip and Rasulullah so we used our blanket and me and my wife only had that blanket we used it to soak up the water and we had to sleep without that blanket this is the generosity that the Sahaba were offering to Rasulullah his only blanket he used it to soak up water just so that a few drops of water wouldn't drip on Rasulullah and Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu Another example of the generosity of people in Medina, Zayd ibn Thabit anhu, says, the first gift made to the Messenger of Allah after he took up residence in the home of Abu Ayyub was brought to him by myself. 
It was a big wooden bowl filled with bread, crumbled up with milk and butter. I told him that my mother had sent him the bowl. He commented, may Allah bless her. Then he called over his companions and they ate. Then a wooden bowl came from Sa'd ibn Ubadah. It was bread mixed with meat gravy. Zayd bin Thabit then says, Not an evening went by without there being at the door of the Messenger of Allah three or four people who would come one after the other carrying food. He remained there in the home of Abu Ayyub for seven months. So you can just imagine the scene of people coming in, everybody carrying a plate to Rasulullah These were poor people, but they were giving up their food for Rasulullah People loved Rasulullah Young girls went in the streets and they were singing. They were saying, we are girls of the Banu Najjar. How wonderful if Muhammad were our neighbor. Rasulullah said, Allah knows that my heart loves you all. Allah knows that my heart loves you all. So they shared that Rasulullah loved them and they loved him. Allah has chosen the people of Ansar to be the Ansar of Rasulullah They loved him very much and he also loved them a lot. Towards the end of his life he said, if it wasn't for Hijrah, I would consider myself to be a member of Al-Ansar. What was the situation of Medina like when Rasulullah moved in there? There were five tribes living in Medina. Three of them were Jewish and two of them were Arab. The three Jewish tribes were Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir, and Banu Quraida. Banu Qaynuqa lived in the center of Medina, the marketplace, and they were in the business of jewelry. They used to live in the outskirts of Medina in forts, but they were driven out in a war between them and other Jews. So they ended up settling in the middle of Medina, in the center of the town. Banu Nadir and Banu Qaynuqa lived in the outskirts of Medina, and they were living in forts. They had about 59 fortresses in which they lived in. Their fighting force was about 2,000. These were the men of fighting age, about 2,000. The Arab tribes were Al-Aus and Al-Khazraj, and their fighting force was about 4,000. And they lived inside Medina. One tribe lived in the north and the other tribe lived in the south. So Medina wasn't really a city in terms of all houses being connected, but it was a collection of small villages that formed Medina. So you'd have living quarters for the Jews and living quarters for the Arabs, and each Jewish tribe was separate, and the two Arab tribes were also separate. The livelihood of the people of Medina was based on agriculture. It was fertile, and they had palm groves. The farmer would need money throughout the year until harvest time would come. So the Jewish tribes would lend the Arabs money and they would charge them interest for usury. And this caused some conflict and some bitter feelings between the Arabs and the Jews of Medina. This is briefly the situation that existed prior to the advent of Islam. Now when Islam came in, now you have Muslims, you have pagan worshippers, and you have Jews. So you had different faiths and different ethnic groups inside Medina. And Rasulullah had to be 
very careful in dealing with these complications in Medina. Don't think that it was very easy and everybody just became Muslim and everybody loved Rasulullah and it was very easy to, to rule over Medina. It was very difficult. You had people among the Arabs who were not happy that Rasulullah was there. You also had the Jewish tribes who were not happy that Rasulullah was there. And then among the Arabs you had Muslim and non-Muslim. So it was a complicated situation. To give you an example of this complication, Rasulullah was riding on his donkey and he went towards a gathering that included Arabs, Muslim and non-Muslim, and also Jews. So Rasulullah went to that gathering and he, when his donkey arrived, obviously it caused some dust and Abdullah ibn Ubay, who later became the head of the Munafiqeen, he said, keep your dust away from us. And then Rasulullah Rasulullah did not respond back to him. Rasulullah started preaching Islam to them. He gave them uh, a talk about Islam. When he finished, Abdullah ibn Ubay said, don't come and bother us in our meetings with your talk. Stay home and whoever comes to visit you, then tell them your stories. Abdullah ibn Rawaha, who was a Muslim, he said, no, we want him to come to our meetings and talk to us. And then people started shouting and war was almost going to break out. And Rasulullah had to calm them down. And then Rasulullah went to the house of Sa'd ibn Ubadah and said, Oh Sa'd, didn't you see what Abdullah ibn Ubay did? Sa'd asked him what happened and when Rasulullah told him, Sa'd responded back by saying, Oh Rasulullah, Abdullah ibn Ubay was a man whom his people were almost going to appoint him king over them when you arrived. So he sees that you have stripped him of his kingdom. You have stripped him of that post. So Sa'd is telling Rasulullah it's understandable that he is against you because he was going to be appointed by Al-Khazraj to be king over them. So this was the situation that Rasulullah was dealing with. Sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This concludes CD1.